Hey everybody and welcome back to How AI Built This. I've got a bit of a roll just now with, with guest after guest. So as always this episode is brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts um, and indeed my employer. So thanks to them. Today we have John Gordon on the podcast. John is the CEO of Incentive Games, um, an Edinburgh based software and gaming company. They use data to help them enhance and customise their offering for each user, which we get into a bit on the podcast. And we've been trying to have a chat with John um, pretty much the whole of lockdown but they've been so busy and doing really well but finally we managed to get him on so please welcome John Gordon. Thank you for coming on the podcast first of all John so it's good to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah no worries um, and I always say at the start of these that the main reason we talk about education is because nobody ever comes from the same background. I think we've smashed that out of the park today. You uh, you come from a chemical and process engineering background right so you went to Harry Watt. Indeed, yes. So um, went to Heriot Watt, but originally from Paisley. Nice. Um, I think we've only, I think we've only had one other person from Heriot Watt. I went there as well. So uh, obviously mm-hmm. the best episodes so far. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, safe to say you're the first person on the podcast with a chemical and process engineering degree. I noticed when you were at Heriot Watt as well on your LinkedIn that you were uh, one of the football team captains. That's pretty cool. I was indeed, yes. So avid football player, um, represented the university. Um, and loved it. I actually still play for Heriot Watt over 35s. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, no way. Uh, yeah. That's that's amazing. Uh, I was going to say to you, actually, um, before the podcast, that we should definitely get a, a Incentive Games Cathcart 5 side game, but given that you still play, and I've also played with Chris before and know how good he is, maybe not. <laughs> no, absolutely. You must have some team. All right, so, I mean, from doing that degree and kind of... Uh, Getting to that point, did you always want to work in that in that world, or did you just kind of start the degree and uh, and just kind of take over from there? So started started the degree when I just turned seventeen. So I went to university at quite a young age. I graduated twenty as a chemical engineer, um, and I had quite a, a comfortable career that took me to the Caribbean. I was the lead chemical engineer for BP in Trinidad and Tobago. Nice. Um, and I, I didn't know anything about business or entrepreneurship, um, still don't, but um, <laughs> I um, I was there um, and I was an avid football fan and I used to write algorithms for people at BP worldwide and we would play against each other throughout the season um, for, for money and it was an enjoyable experience and everyone loved it um, and then we, being based in Trinidad, I would get the I would get the American TV adverts, um, and from there I saw there was a big appetite in America for fantasy football or fantasy American football or fantasy sports gambling. Yeah, and I thought, you know, I'm doing this already worldwide with a network with algorithms that I created. So I thought, by which time I, I was maybe ten years into my career as a chemical engineer or maybe a bit less, but I, I gathered a little bit of savings in my time, so I thought I could quit my job here, move back to the UK. I'd been in Trinidad for about five years by then, settled down with my Scottish uh, girlfriend, who then became my wife, and, and I thought I'll just start this company. So that was about seven years ago. Um, me and three other founders from Heriot Watt University, all mathematicians and engineers, we started this company, which was 
Premier Punt, essentially, which was essentially betting on fantasy football. The idea was not for hardcore gambling, but more of a, a casual way to to enjoy consume football with your yeah. friends and peer-to-peer. And with the ultimate goal was essentially to create an algorithm that would basically take all the data on the pitch. It's essentially, I'll, I'll explain it a little bit differently. So it was a single, it became a single game fantasy football. So six aside. So there's 22 players in a single match and you choose six players and all your friends choose six players. But each of those players get points for every every single action that they make. So traditional fantasy football was just for goals and assists. We created it such that your six players got points for every pass, every tackle, every header, every save, every single action they made, updated in real time. And that, that was essentially our uh, objective, was to create the ultimate sort of immersive live experience. Um, and we did that successfully, well, a relative success. We had We were the number one app in the UK app store with less than a thousand pounds marketing spend. But at the heart of it, we actually changed our business model because although we were had had relative success with regards to downloads, and uh, we weren't making much operational profit because the margins were so small and I thought the business model at its heart wasn't sustainable or scalable. Yeah, okay. Um, that's, that's interesting. I mean, there's so many things to unpick from that, but what um, was the basis of Premier Point and what you were doing in Trinidad? Like, was that what you and the guys were, were betting on with the algorithms you'd made, or was that a kind of, like, modified version? It was, it was certainly a modified version, because essentially what I'd done in the past was just create our own leagues based on the, the official Premier League fantasy game. Yeah. Whereas what we did in the end was we got a feed of real live data from Opta and then we converted that live data into points uh, faster than anybody else in the world and we made it more of a like the users are going up and down the, the, the league table every single pass and it, it was really just to immerse the user on a, on their phone throughout the match yeah, which okay. we did successfully. Yeah, it's really different to the kind of like typical way of playing fantasy, isn't it? And I suppose just to tie in the the kind of background that you had before. I mean, is working with lots of data and, and building a kind of kind of relatively complex algorithms is that part and parcel of the job that you were doing before anyway? So it was kind of natural to not not natural to go into like a football gaming company, but the the skills were very similar. Yeah, I suppose it, it, being an engineer and the, the mathematical and analytical skills that you learned there, you know, it became a natural thing for me to to be able to extract real data on the pitch, attribute, attribute points to them, and give them to the the users of our, our of our apps. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, maybe you can fix all the fantasy Premier League point issues does my head in some of the points that you don't get but no that sounds good and you mentioned it was kind of premier punt and then you decided to pivot slightly uh for the reasons you just mentioned but i mean how was it just setting up with the guys like you mentioned seven years ago or so and running with something did it, did it just feel like it was something you just loved doing it was phenomenal we we were all 
by also oh, working class background, um, engineer mathematician guys from Harry Watt, but we had all by which time had a relatively good, young, successful career in our own disciplines. Um, and we were doing the work on the side. So even though I quit my job in Trinidad for BP, I was sort of headhunted for um, an oil and gas company in Aberdeen, which I took the job, oil, uh, Genesis Oil and Gas. So we were we were all doing maybe 20, 20 hours a week on the side for Premier Punt. And it was all very much a learning experience. We None of us knew how to code, so we had to pay developers to code the products. We, we didn't have any entrepreneurial sort of toolkits or, or networks. So it was, it was very much engineer, mathematician, stumble our way into uh, being businessmen. Just starting everything from scratch. That's one of the things we always talk about, people that start something on their own. is like there's so many other things outside of like the product. Like you've got to learn how to do sales, marketing, uh, mm-hmm. like like what you just said, coding as well. So how did you do that in the early days? Did you kind of offshore that or get friends of friends to do like basic stuff for you in the early days? What we did is we put a, a pot of money together between the four of us and that became the equity split between the four of us and we, we outsourced development. We had to obtain a, a UK gambling license because it was essentially pool betting. So even yeah. though it was it was low stake, you know, two pound, three pound, everyone put some money in and, and you could win maybe, maybe a thousand pounds. So we had to obtain a gambling license for that. Was that, was that a difficult process? I just imagine it would be hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at, at the start, I was more the product algorithm guy. We had Stuart, one of my co-founders, he was... Uh, more legal and uh, compliance, which he probably the short end of the stick because that, <laughs> that was, was an onerous task for him. Um, so even yeah, obtaining gambling licenses, software development, marketing, creating viral apps was was all new to us. And then, as you said, and as I mentioned, we began to pivot maybe three years ago when we didn't really see that there was a, a future in that business model. I look across at FanDuel, DraftKings, and other businesses at the time who who were backing fantasy yeah. uh, as, a, as a, a business model. Um, and I was on panels at, with the FanDuel and DraftKings guys, and, and I was openly saying I, I don't believe in the business model. Many other businesses went out many other companies went out of business. And I think to this point, until FanDuel and DraftKings got their sportsbook licenses, I don't think a single fantasy company has ever made any operational profit. Really? Um, yeah. Jeez. So you you were going on these these panels and were, all the CEOs were saying different things. And I looked across at um, Sky Betting and Gaming and the, the free-to-play games that they had in the fantasy sort of still product. Actually, they stole one of our ideas, the Six Aside product, or, or borrowed it. Um, <laughs> but, they, but I you know, I have a lot of um, time for that sort of business model and I had a lot of admiration for their level of quality in their products. And I, 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 I saw that the this space was not going to be profitable on its own, so we pivoted to being a free-to-play games provider so we would provide the games for free to 
as on a business to business level. So we were B2C uh, and we pivoted to being B2B where we would essentially sell these products into operators and other businesses to essentially acquire and retain customers uh, more easily. Yeah, okay. Um, and did that kind of pivot do what you thought it would? Was, was it kind of a lot of things you'd said before? Did, did that really help in terms of kind of like making the business, uh, I suppose, get a bit more longevity and kind of give you guys a, a new thing to run at? Yeah, I mean, the, we were lucky enough that um, Victor Chandler, um, the the CEO and founder of Bet Victor, um, invested in us personally, and he he saw the value in the sort of the B two B model where we are essentially providing the sort of sky betting and gaming type products to the to the rest of the industry without them having to invest in all of the IP. So we. We were essentially pivoted to being a software company only with yeah. no requirement for a gambling license or anything like that. And we were, again, we were able to make viral apps and products um, without having any risk for the marketing or, you know, anything like that. So we we sell the the, the games to our clients for a setup fee and a monthly fee. Yeah. Do you, um, do you and the team come up with the kind of ideas for a lot of the games or do customers come to you and ask for like something along the lines of this and then you kind of tweak it or, or something you've had before you can customize it or is it a bit more uh, customized? Um, we do both. I would typically come up with concepts um, that we create ourselves and we sell them on. Yeah. But if, for instance, if a tier one, uh, like uh, Live Score, do you know them? Yeah, yeah, I use it all the time. Yeah, so we we just launched with Live Score on Wednesday last week, uh, some new products, uh, and we've got more coming um, that are being launched uh, in the middle of the month. And because they're such a high or a tier one pro uh, client, we we are happy building bespoke games for them. Yeah, and is it still mostly kind of around that world of, of footballers, or just kind of sports games in general? So we do. We do any sports, so we do cricket in India, uh, basketball for America, um, Africa, soccer, even kabaddi in India. Um, <laughs> so whatever, whatever they, whatever they want. So essentially, you know, even from the original products that we had, where you know the algorithm that could take passes and turn it into points for soccer, does the same for cricket kabaddi you know anything so the engines that we built we can essentially get the data feed run it through our algorithms and let the user get gallop points for it yeah okay um and where does kind of where does the kind of um data stuff come in other than what you just said there but do you have like predictive data and um like different ways of using those algorithms to kind of help with the game yeah, so although I'm not the developer or the CTO per se, essentially in layman's terms, I sort of explain to my CTO what I want the games to do. So, you know, a lot of these bigger companies don't have the agility to be able to essentially to deliver the sort of ideas that we're able to deliver. So yeah. whether it's serving up 
proposed bets. So if you've got Harry Kane in your fantasy team, we can we suspect that that user could want to place a bet on Harry Kane to score the first goal. So we can serve up odds for Harry Kane to score the first goal. If you've chosen, yeah, if you're playing a, a score predicting game and you've chosen one 0 Man United, one 0 Arsenal, two 0 Spurs, and so on, yeah, we can then serve up some proposed bets for Man United to win, Spurs to win, Arsenal to win, and and also we can we can predict all their behaviour that they've done in the previous weeks and and try to t- it's essentially. Every one of our pro- every one of our games has a unique experience for the end user based on how they've uh, chosen things in the past. Yeah, okay. Um, no, that makes sense. And I suppose the way that kind of football betting, especially, I mean, that's why I notice it more because that's what I like to do. But I don't know about other sports. But like, there's so many options and markets now. Does that make your job easier or harder? It. it- it makes our company stand out more because we sift through 350 markets and serve up specific ones automatically that that the use we believe the user wants, yeah. and and the and the figures show that we're the best in the industry at it. But That's we, cool. But that being said, we also we we're, we're also more of a a gamification specialist in what we do. So. We we add we look at the science of gamification to engage the user to essentially not just serve up potential odds or monetize. At the heart of it, we always want to make the the experience enjoyable for the user, yeah. and it's free to play for the rest of their life if they wish. If they want to do something else, so be it. Uh, so we use a lot of gamification uh, mechanics such as. Easter eggs, random rewards, or leveling up leaderboards and achievements. So um, we started reading about that probably later than I would have liked, maybe about three years ago, yeah. um, The Science of Gamification. I read a book called Actionable Gamification um, by Yu Kai Chou, and it was, it, was, it was a game changer for me. And I'm happy to say now that Yukai is now an investor in our business and an That's advisor. Amazing. Yeah, he's he's phenomenal. If you if any of you have time, even look at his TED talk. Yeah. Um, actionable gamification or or his book. And and I think at the heart of it, what it is is engaging the user so viral product or an enjoyable experience, it does it doesn't come easy and we're we're just painstakingly focused and dedicated to making the the experiences enjoyable for the end user. Yeah, no, it sounds amazing. Um, and it sounds like as a company, you've managed to, it's kind of like what you've already said, but like you've managed to stand out from all of the kind of like so-called bigger guys. And because of that, attract some really, really like impressive investment rather than going to seek it. Is that is that kind of fair in terms of how it came about? Yes, yeah, we're we're in a bit of a fortunate position now, with the guidance we've we've had phenomenal advisors from likes of UKI for the gamification piece, Victor Chandler, opening doors throughout the industry. Um, we've got another Victor Victor Pronk, who's twenty years as an entrepreneur, and and even in Edinburgh we've got the likes of Mike Rutterford and John Clayden, 
so we've been very fortunate to have not just great advice uh, investors but really happy and constructive advisors and investors yeah no that's really good um and, and i suppose we're kind of jumbling around the order a bit, but that's fine you went from kind of the the three or four man founding team of Premier Punt to outsourcing development skills. Uh, and then it comes to a point now where you're, as you mentioned, a software business and you've got your own in-house team, not just in software, but across the board. When did, was there a point where you guys realized like we're going to, we're really kind of growing something here and we're going to need to have X, Y, and Z in place to, to make it a success? Yeah, so we we started out at I mean, yeah, we've come maybe come a long way in the seven years it seems, but the outsourcing software development uh, seemed like a good idea for maybe three years. It was a fixed cost. It was only a couple of years ago that we actually got our own CTO, Chief Technical Officer. Yeah, he was a uh, a bit of a step change in the business where. We thought we'd build our own team, build our own competency and all, our own uh, internal. Although we owned all the IP, we wanted more control. Um, we managed to get uh, Mike Stevens, who was at OpenBet for 15 years, who, who OpenBet are basically supply the software that Ladbrokes, William Hill, Paddy Power and everyone uses the same software. Yeah. And he, he, he was part of building that so a phenomenal CTO which has helped us build a, a fantastic team all Edinburgh based developers that's um, awesome yeah we've got great guys there we've got a phenomenal designer head of design and then some great designers below him so we yeah we've, we've now maybe a 15 strong team um, but always always pushing and always growing yeah no i mean it sounds good you mentioned edinburgh there i mean was it you i mean i know you're not from edinburgh but was it quite important for you to grow the company in in the city rather than kind of having people all over the place it was important to me to build essentially and you know this liam edinburgh has got got phenomenal talent yeah and from the universities and and Scottish engineers and British engineers are phenomenal and software engineers are no different. So I, I really wanted to really grow that competency. And if you look at what the guys in, in London are paying for developers, you know, and they're hitting, they can be hit or miss. And it's, it's quite an expensive process. We were with, with getting Mike at that level and him being able to hire his hand select who works for us and, and I think we pay you know a decent rate for these developers but still cheaper than London and yeah. such such a great quality and and you know over the time we're, we're getting faster and better and faster and better so I think I think it was a, a really good decision for us to build locally and not outsource it which was you know to the uh, an overseas development company hmm. which was an option of course yeah, definitely. I think it's an interesting point, and we've spoken about it in the last couple of podcasts with people um, saying about how the kind of lasting impact of coronavirus, and and I might be way wrong on this, but I think tech talent will want way more flexibility from now on. So 
being somewhere, I mean, I appreciate Edinburgh is still a capital city. It's still very expensive to live uh, and all that kind of stuff. But it's significantly cheaper than a lot of other places um, that you could be uh, mm-hmm. do, doing a very similar job. And again, very biased since I'm from here. But it's also an amazing city to actually live in. So it's uh, no, it's all. It makes sense to do it from Edinburgh, and then also having, I don't know, maybe the chance to attract some of those London developers, but to mm. come, but to come up north might be a result of COVID. I don't know. That's maybe just a, a bit of speculation. Um, but I think it could. I think it could happen. And I think what we we we've got the luxury of being a what I'd like to think is an attractive company to work for in Edinburgh this is sort of so we're, we're we're able to to get really good talent um and, and and keep them excited I mean what what we did find is you know we we were actually part of uh the RBS entrepreneur hub oh yeah yeah which was previously uh, entrepreneur of spark yeah and and which is sort of glossed over there but they I've been. We was we were with them for maybe two and a half years, and they've been absolutely phenomenal with regards to. I think we had one employee when I started there. Um, like I say, we're fifteen plus at the moment, and and growing as quickly as we can. Which I'll speak to you about this later. Um, so they they when when I mentioned earlier, I didn't know about the networks or the the tools that were available. It's, it was just a real education for me and the, and the team yeah. so we now, now just moved out of that office we were moving into our own office in Haymarket oh, nice. um, and then this COVID happened so my <laughs> guys have all been working from home and and it's been phenomenal uh, 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 it's been phenomenal with you know the amount of product productivity and the developers have been you know out of this world so yeah I, I do think that maybe when we do eventually go back it may be two, three days a week in the office and the rest of the time out in the office. Yeah. Oh, but you've just set yourself up for that, though. Now it's, now it's on the podcast for all your developers to hear. Yeah. Uh, no, I think it makes sense. I mean, um, we've always, I've done a lot of technology recruitment in the last seven or eight years, and uh, a lot of the kind of data scientists and developers that I've worked with, they're, they're kind of set up from home better than most offices set them up. So like you maybe you're at a startup where you get given a kind of like Mac or whatever, but at home they've got like the three screens, they've got like everything set up, like a nice little office set up. They can just get on with their work. So arguably they'd be better from home for some people. Although yeah. I, don't think, I don't think I've met anyone that isn't excited to go back into the office in some regard. I mean, I know some people yeah. said this is the future of work, blah 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 blah. Uh, not for me, but I know that even the people that I know that are ardent work from home. It should be flexible, blah blah blah. They're very excited to get back into the office still. So yeah. it's good if you've still got that new space in in Haymarket to go to. But yeah, yeah. I'm sure they'll appreciate that as well. And I think we it'd be good for us to you know get back to the Edinburgh economy a bit as well, get a space in there and, and cement ourselves as being you know a company in the centre of Edinburgh and and recruit the local guys and yeah a proper edinburgh software company who are like kind of started here and and keeping on going with that and i like that what about well, there was two different trains of thoughts so i'll try to remember both of them but from a, a kind of impact on on the business from from covid19 point of view you, correct me if i'm wrong but you guys are in an okay spot given what you do well it's a, it's a good question we we were we were all set up um it had been a long road but Business to business selling is a business to business is great business model 
when it's up and running. But business to business sales is a long road. If you'd be lucky if did you know turn around from contract is twelve months, you know, from initial meeting, convincing them to take it and so on and so forth. And yeah. with, with free to play games, it's a big it's a big outlay because you need to essentially invest in that we can do our job and that the the games will work and they will increase conversions and they'll increase retention and reduce their acquisition costs. And and it's all pretty novel stuff that we were creating. So when we shifted from a B2C to a B2B company, um, there was a lot of learnings in place. We didn't have a salesperson. We were, we were expecting all the sales to come to us, um, <laughs> which um, which is quite uh, an idea, yeah, probably a bit of a mistake. But we, we actually, about a year ago, hired uh, a salesperson. And since then, he's managed to, you know, take us from one to one hundred. Um, so much so, we've had to tell him to calm down a bit. Um, <laughs> but so that so that was that was always a big thing for you know was getting enough sales. So what we were getting ourselves to before COVID, we had um, we had free to play games launching in India, China, America, everywhere in the world essentially for cricket for the biggest operators in the world and um, some great contracts. And then all of the, all of the, <laughs> all of the sports were canceled. Yeah. You know, the madness, the euros. I had, I had all the t- big operators sign up for the euros in the Premier League. So although we had done a lot of hard yards, it was time to really reflect and say, can we, what can we do from here? And, mm. um, and luckily, even my wife said, "Not even we can, or not even I can, can create a game from nothing." But what we did is did the very thing. So we we created virtual products, and uh, virtual football, virtual racing, virtual penalty kicks, and and lo and behold, um, those are doing phenomenally well actually. And um, so much so that uh, the virtual products are are going through the roof. So that's amazing. All of those big operators and LiveScored and all the media companies um, that wanted these apps and free-to-play games, I, I simply switched it to virtual products, and they, they're, they're taking them. And when they when they went live, the the activity is huge because there is no live sports, so it's it's been great. Yeah, right, people were just gonna they were really clambering for something, weren't they? So getting a product out there. And, and like you said, again, you guys can beat most people on speed. That must really help. And does it also put you in a nice position when, well, now we're seeing some of it, the sport's kind of trickling back in because you did have those relationships in place and you've done well with the virtual stuff. Do you think it will now be a lot easier just to switch that right back on again? Yes, absolutely. So so we, we were maybe anticipating a, a dip on the virtual games, but what we're finding is that they're coming for the live sport, like, like, um, the Bundesliga, but staying to play the virtuals. Yeah. Because it's more consistent. And like you say, now that we are live with these clients, it's, we can then just turn on these other games. So, um, thankfully we just nurture the, the, the clients and, and upsell our own products. 
Yeah, I think it's a really good, like it's a good story though that the people that have done quite well out of um, what is something that was kind of pretty much unforeseen was that they've managed to pivot quite quickly away from not away from, but like they've managed to add something else rather than mm-hmm. just kind of feeling sorry for themselves, which I suppose you easily could have given that the Euros was cancelled and uh, like all that kind of stuff. It could have been, might have been quite easy just to be a bit like almost almost like pissed off by it rather than just sorting, sorting it out. Yeah, yeah, it, it was exactly that, and um, it has been a phenomenal ten weeks for us um, because it it wasn't it wasn't the best outlook at the time. I mean, even things like the Scottish Enterprise Grants, yeah, for some obscure reason, and I hope they're listening. We 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 didn't qualify for that, even though all we've done is hire fifteen local Edinburgh employees, create jobs. Yeah, and supporting all the local, you know, recruitment companies, lawyers, every, everything local, had all these contracts for COVID, before COVID signed and developed, and, the, and for some reason we weren't applicable for these grants. So, mm. um, so I do hope they're listening because uh, it's it was a shocking decision from them. Yeah. Um, that is one of the kind of more, uh, well, it's probably one of the most negative sides of all this. I appreciate people are losing jobs and or are on furlough and stuff, but I feel like it almost has meant smaller companies have probably been hit harder than almost anybody else. I mean, if, uh, there was there was a lot of money given out to, given out to those com- uh, some some companies, and I hope it's helped. And and I do appreciate the Scottish Enterprise or the Scottish government were doing that, and. And that that is a great thing, but f- I, I just feel amused why we were shunned by it. I mean, mm-hmm. we didn't get a single person a pay cut. We never made anybody redundant. We put one person on furlough, and they're going to be gamefully employed after this. And we've actually been one of the only companies that we've hired four people since then. Yeah. So it's uh, it blows my mind why Scottish Enterprise decided that we were not applicable for that yeah no that's crazy a couple other things i wanted to touch on so you mentioned when you guys all started this out all very good at what you did individually and then you kind of come together to to run a business in a a very different world (laughs) if somebody was setting up now not necessarily in the gamification space or or the even the software space but if somebody was setting up a business in edinburgh now i mean did you do you have any kind of tips or things you wish you knew in terms of how to build a network and not necessarily where to look for help, but just kind of to, to get your name out there and uh, and kind of do what you've done? So this is a very good question. I think the first place I would start would would be the RBS Entrepreneurial Club. Um, Stuart Dearden been phenomenal. The 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 mentors there, the support everything's free Jill Rattray all the tools are there all the networks are there and, and even the recruitment companies that <clears throat> you would think you know they, most of them have a startup um, package and most of them are willing to to genuinely help you know yeah. even lawyers I think that when it comes to startups in Edinburgh there's a lot of help and support they, they always seem to you know take a punt on you know, whether it be the recruitment companies or the lawyers companies generally, they will say, you know, we'll, we will give you a bit of a, a help out here. And the hope that you, you do make it and that you look after them in the long run. 
Yeah, I mean, there's loads of good examples of that. I mean, if you'd been helping the likes of Skyscanner or whatever, like 10, 15 years ago when they there were just three guys setting it up, and uh, mm. you took a bit of a punt as their, I don't know, interim CTO or their lawyer or just whatever it might be, and like they ended up getting a bot for a billion quid. Like you kind of have to hedge your bets a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But I know that I mean the Edinburgh tech scene is pretty amazing. I mean we recruit not just in Edinburgh, so I get to see other cities and how they approach it. And I definitely think Edinburgh's probably the best that I've kind of been involved in in terms of just like people being able to help each other and and there's no. Obviously, there's competition, but like it feels like there's a lot less dickheads kicking around than maybe in other cities. Again, just using London as an example, where it feels just a bit cutthroat. Mm-hmm. And you've probably seen that more than more than I have, anyway. Yeah, no, I, you know, I do, I do love the Edinburgh um, vibe and the Edinburgh entrepreneurial scene. I mean, every everyone in London is an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> so. that's, a good, that's a good point. Yeah. I'm a bit sceptical of that, but we'll see. And then what about kind of any top tips for people that are starting to build that team out with the founders team? And like, have you guys had a method of whether it's interviewing or even just creating the culture of what the office is like? I mean, how have you guys managed to do that from a few people to what is now 15 people? And then obviously the next step up to like, let's say 50. Like, how do you, how do you go about that? Do you think, or what's worked for you? Cause obviously there's no right way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So we've, we've sort of done it organically at the start. We hired um, people that we could trust that we knew friends, Chrissy Ray, one of them. You can't get them all right, mate. <laughs> he was, he was the one, the first employee. How was it? Uh, and he's still here. So, and then what we did is we started hiring just local goods and graduates with generic degrees, potentially, you know, astrophysicist or a biologist or whatever the case may be. But that took us to a certain point. Um, we were basically could only afford that sort of level. I would be honest in saying what to take yourself to the next step. What we've the best thing we did is. is is hire industry experienced people when you get to that stage. So once your business model is is proven and you have the money, you know, an experienced salesperson in your industry has been phenomenal. Yeah. If you're B2B, of course. Um, an experienced CTO in that industry has been phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and same, so for me, it's a technical design and sales and we you and what we've the founders me me and Stuart are two of the founders that are working in the company the other two founders are Johnny Wardman and Andy Deacon they are um, they're, they're now silent investors yeah. um, but Stuart and I are more generic management in the company we don't do any of those specific roles yeah. and we make sure that the people that we bring in at the right levels at the right time or or do the competencies but again it we've we've went through we've learned a more bumblebee way where we hire people that didn't work out and we learned over time you know what, what and then what you then over time you you realize maybe we should have let go of that person sooner and yeah you, you see like red flags a lot quicker yeah but you, get, you get better at that stuff as you go don't you you need to learn it did you find it hard between you and um, you and Stuart 
to let go or when you brought in the CTO and the salesperson and the head of design, did it just make it easy because they just were so good that it gave you a chance just to step away and kind of look at the business from a kind of a higher point of view, if you like? Certainly not to, to let go. It was it was a case of we, we're just happy that the, between the four of us, we were all very sort of passive, open guys that are, there's no egos, there's no anything. Um, and essentially all we want to do is, is get the right people for those jobs. So it was like handing it over and saying, you know, you've got the autonomy and run with it and obviously work with us. But yeah, absolutely no problem with passing over the workload. <laughs> That's a good point. And I suppose kind of last couple of points, but given we talked about what has happened so far in 2020, if the, the world kind of turns back on again, which it looks like it's kind of slowly doing, well, you guys be in a pretty good place to just really ramp up what you'd already set in set in stone and uh, and just kind of execute it almost. Yeah, that that's that's the plan. So we're now in the, the sort of scale f- phase, and we're we're now in the point where we've got too many contracts to then we know we can. Yeah, we're we're trying to keep our clients happy. So um, there's a lot of work in the horizon. Essentially, we just need to keep building our competence uh, building up our uh, developers yeah. and um, you know, keep hiring and hiring um, so you have, do you have things in place for like now that you are getting to that point of like the contracts are coming in and the sporting events are going to keep ramping back again have you looked at kind of how maybe having like uh, people I think, I think the, the current term is customer success managers so like have you got people who are like responsible for looking after customers or right now does that still fall to like you and the sales guys yeah, I suppose I'm now that sales isn't as much of a problem. I'm all about delivery and keeping the customers happy. Yeah. So one of the key PIs is is to not lose any clients, and and it's and we're doing the opposite there anyway because essentially the one of the problems is is well not a problem but every time we sell one game they see another game that we've got somewhere else and they want that as well. <laughs> That's a good problem to have. Uh, so, so, that, so why I'm trying to keep the client happy? So, yeah, um, was was uh, keeping my CTO sane. So we are, um, so, so t- you know, what we always want, the position we always wanted to be in was to control that, which is keep hiring more developers. Yeah, and and I think that's that's going to be the the way we're doing it until yeah. the end of the year and and, and onwards. To the biggest, biggest gaming com- or biggest software gaming company in in the world, and, it, and this has just popped into my head now. But once you've got like a really good client or a really good few clients in the world that you guys kind of operate, is it quite? And easy is not the right word, but I can't think of a, a smarter way of saying it. Is it quite easy to pick up other clients because you say, "Look what we did for this company." I know that you guys do something very similar, either in a different market or a different kind of country, but we can just do this again for you. Quite. Quite right. So the sales process is a lot easier when, when we're on live score. Yeah. You know, you, you just said, do you want this game? You don't even, you know, it's live. You can show them the Google analytics and, and there is no real sales part of it. So that's why sales are becoming a bit, a lot more easy, a lot easier. Sorry. So yeah, once you have the data, there is no risk for the mm. client. And once they can see it live, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite a straightforward sale. Yeah, and I know, I mean, even just from talking to you now, but I, I know from um, 
speaking to the guys before, but like you guys obviously back yourself as well. So once you get in front of a customer, like it's just that ability to show them everything it can do and just say, like just give us a shot to, to prove it almost like you guys are so confident in it. So there's no like, it's not even really selling. It's more just asking for a foot in the door. Yeah, it, do, it does sound uh, a little bit cocky, but I'm not the CTO. I just know that he always deliver, we always deliver. Um, and then the games are, do do what they they're supposed to do. So, and, and which essentially we it gets our clients more revenues, it engages the customers better than what's out there, and and the and the the players love playing the games. So, yeah, not too many. Um, and then just lastly, then where uh, where's the best place to like follow incentive games? Do you guys because it is B two B. Do you guys post much on like social media and stuff, or is it more kind of behind the scenes? Yeah, so of all the 15 employees, not one of us is active on any real social media, believe it or not. We're all um, nice media phobes, it seems. I'm sure it doesn't have any social media at all. Um, and so we've actually got um, a company that looks after our LinkedIn. So LinkedIn... Uh, the main one, yeah. Is, is the main one. Our, our website incentivegames.com has all of our games on it and and the, our clients and everything and yeah I think it's it's just LinkedIn from there yeah no that makes sense it's where a lot it was where a lot of businesses go as well so that that makes sense so people can check it out there and I think that's pretty much us uh thanks very much for coming on and, uh, and telling the kind of incentive game story thanks for having me in my monotone voice <laughs> that's okay I like when I've got another Scottish person because I had loads of people from uh, down south on in a row um, and I've now had two west coast in a row so uh, I've, I've been delighted about that I just feel sorry for James if he understands every, everything that we're both saying okay. oh perfect well thank you very much I hope you enjoyed that everybody John is uh, a really good guy and it's a really interesting story going from kind of building up a successful career in something to then completely abandoning that and setting up your own business with, with a few of your mates um, and turning it into to what he has and, and what I'm sure it will be so yeah no I really enjoyed that and it's a uh, kind of different slant to what we've had on the podcast before but again the whole reason I set this up is to kind of tell the stories of companies and people um, in the kind of Edinburgh, Scotland, northwest of England and beyond kind of tell their stories for more of the kind of SME market rather than all these big uh, big organisations. Uh, it was really good to have him on and um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, thanks again to Cathcart for sponsoring and I'll see you again soon. Bye bye.